Good afternoon. Welcome to the um, musicless version of Hooting Yard on the Air. My name is Frank Key. We'll have the music in a little while. Good afternoon. This is Hooting Yard on the Air with me, Frank Key, reading prose to you for half an hour. Um, no theme music this week yet, but we'll have some, some of the theme music later on. This is, um, I was given a task, and the task was to describe a typical Dobson breakfast scene. On the face of it, this sounds like a simple enough assignment. It is, of course, anything but. Those who have even a passing acquaintance with the titanic, out-of-print pamphleteer Dobson know that the words typical and breakfast can never be crammed together. It's an understatement to say that he had mixed feelings about breakfast. There were times when he was up and about before dawn, gobbling down a huge bowl of porridge. There again, he sometimes stumbled downstairs at noon, bleary and fractious, waving his arms in dismissal of a proffered slice of toast. From one day to the next, there was no knowing how Dobson would greet the day, and, however, and howsoever he did greet it, no knowing with what foodstuffs, if any, the day would commence. I cannot, in all honesty then, describe a typical Dobson breakfast scene, as is required of me. <clears throat> Instead, I propose to examine two Dobsonian breakfasts from different stages in his life, to which I'll add some observations on a pamphlet he planned, but never wrote, on this important topic. Will that do? I'll take silence there for assent. The first breakfast scene I wish to evoke is one that took place when Dobson was living around the corner from the notorious flapper Popsy Shadrach. Popsy's well-kept secret at the height of her flapperdom was that she was the devoted mother of an infant. Her daughter grew up to become the daredevil adventuress Tiny Enid. At the time of this breakfast, however, Tiny Enid was not even a twinkle in her mother's eye. Popsy was returning from a gin joint at dawn and crashed her jalopy into Dobson's hedge, waking the pamphleteer, who leapt out of bed, thundered out into his front garden, carried the stunned demi-mondaine into his parlour, and sought to revive her by winding up his gramophone and playing the adagio from Bohuslav Martinu's Concerto for String Quartet and Orchestra at ear-splitting volume. Outside, it began to pour with rain, and steam hissed from the jalopy's smashed-up engine, so much steam that the hedge was obscured. This was the inspiration for Dobson's tremendous pamphlet Hedges Hidden from Sight by Steam, out of print, the only one of his works to be illustrated with watercolours. When the music stopped, Dobson bid the groggy but only slightly injured flapper to join him at the breakfast table. He preened and ate bloaters. Popsy contented herself with a tumbler of gin sucked from a straw, for her wrist was sprained and she could not hold the glass. We move forward four decades to consider a second Dobson breakfast scene. Bloaters have their place here too, but there is no gin, 
No Popsy Shadrach, no Tiny Enid, by now an adult famed wherever people speak of daredevil adventuresses, and no hedge hidden by steam. In fact, there is no hedge at all, for Dobson has moved on, as we all must, sooner or later. The second breakfast I invite you to ponder was prepared and consumed in an anteroom on the sixth floor of a palace belonging to the plenipotentiary Oberstraung General of a disputed territory south of the Great Frightening River. What in heaven's name, you may ask, was the impecunious pamphleteer doing in such sumptuous surroundings? <coughs> Excuse me. I should point out that he was only there for three days, having been invited under the mistaken assumption that he was a tuner of pianos, an easy error to make, given that his most recent pamphlet was entitled I, Piano Tuner! Exclamation mark. Dobson's host had clearly not read beyond the cover page, for even a cursory reading of the text would show that the pamphleteer was wholly ignorant of his subject. It is one of his most mystifying tracts, being largely concerned with the unrelated topics of soup and buttons. But let that pass. So there is Dobson, muffled from the workaday world in a suite of rooms hung with rich brocade tapestries, while embarrassed arrangements are made for a special sealed train to whisk him away, leaving the plenipotentiary Oberstraung General's piano untuned. Morning sweeps across the sky on the pamphleteer's final morning. The train is due at ten. A factotum enters Dobson's temporary boudoir, bearing a tray, and upon the tray is the territory's traditional breakfast, a dish of boiled marrow steeped in honey from rare bees, a block of dry cocoa bread, and a piping hot beaker of a local decoction into which a raw egg has been broken. The factotum places the tray on a side dresser and flings open the heavy curtains, flooding the room with milky light. Turning, the lackey is about to awaken the snoozing pamphleteer, but Dobson is nowhere to be seen. The bedclothes are rumpled, discarded pyjamas are strewn on the floor, but the breakfasty has vanished. Eventually, the factotum tracks Dobson down to an anteroom adjoining the palace's sixth-floor kitchens, where he is sitting alone, having helped himself to his breakfast from astonishingly well-stocked larders. Dobson is preening and eating bloaters. I said I'd end this piece by mentioning an unwritten Dobson pamphlet. He planned at one stage to compile a list of every breakfast he had ever eaten from infancy onwards and made some preparatory notes. To this bald listing, he intended to add observations on place settings, tablecloths, cutlery and crockery and general ambience. We should be thankful that he never actually wrote this work, for it would have been as dull as ditch water. But not the fearsome ditch water that was, a, that was the main ingredient of the palace breakfast decoction. That ditch water was by no means dull, for when the factotum poured Dobson's untouched beakerful down the sink, it sizzled and hissed and corroded the piping. It corroded the piping of the palace, and the palace collapsed.
This is information intelligence. Well, we um, <coughs> appear not to have any music. I could hum it, but that would probably be a bad idea. Um, so this is a piece called Epoch of Snares. We all know that there was an age known as the Epoch of Snares, but it is surprising how little is generally known about it. This was a time when giant badger-like beings roamed the hills of the earth, when the oceans were deeper, darker and more terrifying than they are now and when only the very bravest of souls volunteered to crew the enormous primitive container ships that plied across those seas. It was an age of seething murderousness, of great cosmic shifts, of roaring winds that uprooted the few pitiful scraps of vegetation that struggled for life in soil that was not soil as we know it today. In the epoch of snares, soil was much more friable and crumbly, and sometimes even very crumbly. It seldom had the compactness or density to hold a plant secure from the biting winds, the same winds whose intense coldness seemed somehow to inspire the giant badger-like beings up in the hills. There were more hills then, higher, more rounded, covering vast expanses. In those times, shoes had not been invented. Hard to imagine that the fierce and burly sailors on those container ships did everything they had to do in bare feet, or sometimes wearing sock-like wrappings. We no longer know how such things were made, from what materials, with what technology. For all the wrappings that were ever worn have perished, and our only evidence is some briskly scribbled drawings done with the aid of a clairvoyant whose bruise, when taken in sufficient quantities, enabled her to picture the past, or so she claimed. Men and women were outnumbered by pelicans in those days. Some estimates say there were 200 pelicans to every person, but these were not our modern pelicans. They came in all sizes, some as tiny as hamsters, others bigger than the biggest of the giant badger-like beings that roamed the windswept hills. Some would have it that a huge asteroid from a faraway galaxy lumbered with millions upon millions of eggs smashed into the earth and the impact scattered these alien eggs and from them the pelicans hatched. But this is a frankly ludicrous theory and one not given credence when one considers that it was propounded by a gibbering maniac chained to the wall of a cellar in a bleak and derelict village. That maniac is my brother, so I know whereof I speak. Indeed, so assiduous have my studies been these last 50 years that I believe I know more about the epoch of snares than anyone else alive. I know what freight was carried in those primitive container ships that crossed ceaselessly from shore to shore. Bales. 
A staggering number of bales of every size and description, handled and watched over with infinite care by those fearsome, fearless sailors, a special breed, so different from the weedy landlubbers who vied for scarce resources with innumerable pelicans, and so nearly lost the struggle. But of course, the pelicans were all but wiped out in just one winter, and even I do not know how that happened. The Epoch of Snares is notable too, because it was an era when only one type of cloud appeared in the sky namely the anvil cloud. The anvil cloud is the description for the upper portion of a towering cumulonimbus, mostly ice, which forms high in thunderstorms, and there were constant thunderstorms at that time. People did not then fear thunder and lightning, as many do today, nor did the pelicans fear the rack and roar of storms, but what do you think it was that had all those giant badger-like beings charging back and forth over the hills? Terror is the answer. Terror of thunder in particular. These strange beasts' ears were hypersensitive, could hear things that people and pelicans could not, and whatever it was they heard in the thunder filled them with fear, and so they would be forever seeking a place of safety, but never finding one for they never came down from the high hills. The badger beings too died out, but not at the same time as the pelicans. Geological upheavals have flattened many of the hills where they crashed around in panic, and no one has yet found any trace of their bones. Perhaps it's true what my brother says, that the badger beings never existed, were but a vapour in the brain of some historical fantasist, but I doubt he can be right about that, and so hopelessly, ridiculously wrong about the pelicans. I hope you will concur. As we have seen, the people of that time had no shoes, nor did they have saints. As far as I've been able to ascertain, they did not have what we would today think of as a religion. To be sure, they subscribed to a cosmogony, they had some dim, dull-witted inkling of how the earth and the heavens, the sun and moon and stars and anvil clouds all fitted together, but it was not one I have wasted time trying to understand, for it was clearly idiotic. I have in my pouch a diagram made by that clairvoyant I mentioned, which purports to show the universe as understood in the Epoch of Snares, but it is a slapdash diagram, and, I feel, only muddies waters already murky enough. And why, everyone asks, sooner or later, is this long-ago age known as the Epoch of Snares? Why not the Epoch of Bales, of Badger Beings, of Interplanetary Pelicans? Why not the Epoch of Enormous Primitive Container Ships that plied across the seas? Why not, indeed, the epoch of no shoes? Well, go to the bleak and derelict village, enter that dark, dank cellar, approach the gibbering maniac chained to the wall. Ask my brother. He will tell you.
regular listeners will know that I like to... Um, oh, yes, there was the music. See, we told you you'd get music. Um, it's all part of the live Hooting Yard experience. Regular listeners know that um, I like to intersperse my own stuff with um, quotations. And um, the quote, this is actually quite a lengthy quotation. Um, the Guardian newspaper runs a daily selection from its archives. And um, a, a little while ago, they published something that was originally published in March 1844. And it's so good, um, I'm going to read the whole thing to you. I think it's a series of advertisements. But this was in The Guardian um, in March 1844, which is... I can't quite work out how many years ago that is, but a long, long time. Um, and here it is. I think you'll enjoy this. Worms destroyed. Medicine never witnessed a more important discovery than in Pritchett's vegetable vermifuge, a remedy that neither purges, vomits, nor otherwise affects the constitution, requires no confinement, has neither taste nor smell, and is so harmless that it may be taken by an infant of an hour old, yet never, in one instance, failed destroying every worm in the body. It contains not a particle of calomel, scammony, gamboge, or other drastic article. Large packets, two shillings and ninepence. Apoplexy prevented. Determination of blood to the head effectually prevented by the occasional use of Frampton's pill of health which, by strengthening, strengthening the action of the stomach, prevents alarming giddiness, oppression of the brain, singing noise in the ears, headache. They are an excellent aperient without griping or prostration of strength. Price, one, one shilling and one and a half shillings and two shillings and ninepence a box. Sorry, I got a bit confused about pre-decimal currency there. For stopping decayed teeth, patronised by Her Majesty the Queen, His Royal Highness Prince Albert, Her Royal Highness the Duchess of Kent, His Majesty the King of the Belgians, His Majesty the King of Prussia, His Grace the Archbishop of Canterbury, and nearly all the nobility, the bishops and the clergy. Mr Thomas's succadanium for filling decayed teeth, however large the cavity. It is superior to anything ever before used, as it is placed in the tooth in a soft state, without any pressure or pain, and in short time becomes as hard as the enamel, and will remain firm in the tooth for many years, rendering extraction unnecessary. It arrests all further progress of decay, and renders them again useful in mastication. All persons can use Mr. Thomas's succadaneum themselves with, el with ease, without the aid of a dentist. Prepared only by Mr. Thomas, Surgeon Dentist, 8 Berners Street, Oxford Street, London. Price, four shillings and sixpence. Mr. Thomas will send it free by post. General debility. To those who are suffering from nervous complaints... Rheumatism, scurvy, sorbutic eruptions, and all diseases arising from the impurity of the blood. The cordial balm of Syriacum is a gentle stimulant and enervator of the impaired functions of life, 
and is therefore calculated to afford decided relief to those who have fallen into a state of most chronic debility. It possesses wonderful efficacy in fits, headache, weakness, heaviness, dimness of sight, confused thoughts, wandering of the mind, and all kinds of hysteric complaints. Price, 11 shillings. I want some cordial balm of Syriacum, I think. Um, <clears throat> I got a letter from um, a Hooting Yard reader, a reader of the website um, who lives in New Zealand, Glyn Webster. He wrote, Dear Uncle Dan, Recently my dreams have been full of boredom and drudgery. The work is hard, the company is dull, and I'm thoroughly relieved to open my eyes in the morning. Sometimes I wake up to find myself hauling my body out of the bed the way a shipwrecked sailor might haul himself ashore. What is happening to me? Yours, Glyn. Hooting Yard readers and listeners may remember Uncle Dan, who used to pen a column entitled Ask Uncle Dan. Alas, this doyen of agony uncles is no longer with us. I always wondered what had happened to him. And coincidentally, on the very day that I got Mr Webster's letter, I also received this. Dear Mr Key, you don't know me and I prefer to remain anonymous. I can tell you that I have a waxed moustache, but I hope you will not take the same view as Robert Baden-Powell, who wrote, I was once accused of mistrusting men with waxed moustaches. Well, so, to a certain extent, I do. It often means vanity and sometimes drink. I am not vain. I drink only lukewarm tap water, dandelion and burdock, and occasionally tizer. I try not to preen my moustache overmuch, but I confess that waxing it has always been a small pleasure of mine, and Lord knows I deserve a small measure of pleasure, as who does not. But to business. I'm writing to you to pass on greetings from a fellow I met up in the hills last Thursday. Like me, he was unwilling to divulge his name, but he said that you would know who he was. He was dressed in billowing cloth which looked as if once it had been a parachute or part of a parachute and his face had the pallor of bean curd. He too sported a waxed moustache but I did not smell drink on his breath nor did he seem to be puffed up with vanity. It makes one wonder if Baden-Powell had any kind of grip on reality quite frankly. Anyway, as I say, we were up in the hills, this fellow and I, he was standing upright on a boulder, peering intently at a speck in the sky in the far distance. What do you see? I asked, when I was close enough for him to hear me above the wild and wailing wind. For answer, he merely pointed, and I turned to look at the unmoving speck. Neither of us had binoculars, more's the pity. That speck, he said suddenly, in a voice which curiously reminded me of television presenter Dale Winton. That speck is what I see. I have been watching it for three hours, and it's not moved. It's a very mysterious speck. I offered him a plum from my fruit bag, but he refused it because he said it was bruised, and he would not eat bruised plums. 
Instead, he took a surgeon's biscuit from some pocket or pouch concealed within his billowing cloth and began chewing on it. The wind was howling with even more violence now, and I bid the man come shelter with me in an ornithologist's lair I knew of, not a hundred paces away. He jumped down from his perch on the boulder with surprising sprightliness, and then took me by the arm. It was an over-familiar yet somehow reassuring gesture. And so we sat in the lair, me with my plums and he with his biscuits, and we waited for the wind in the hills to die down. To pass the time, we played a game of tea strainers, improvising with broken twigs. When we parted an hour or so later, he returned to his boulder and pointed out that the unmoving speck was still there. I looked, but now I could not see it. I preened my moustache and said farewell, but not before promising to write to you. Yours faithfully, Mr X. There's no doubt in my mind that the man my anonymous correspondent met in the hills was Uncle Dan. He was always seeing still specks in the sky that were invisible to everyone else, and was forever lamenting that in all his years as an agony uncle, no one wrote to him reporting a similar experience. I once asked him how he would reply if someone did, and he muttered something in his Dale Winton voice about paralysed chaffinches caught and cushioned in air pockets. As for Glyn Webster's heartfelt plea, I've placed it in a cardboard box, along with many other unanswered letters to Uncle Dan. One day, he may return to us, in his billowing cloth, with his waxed moustache and his pallor of bean curd, and his mighty, towering wisdom. That's all from Hooting Yard on the air for this week. Um, I'd like to just leave you with another great quotation, very profound. This is from a woman who was at Crufts Dog Show at the weekend, who said, There's a big difference between dancing on your own and dancing with a dog. I think that's very, very true. And I'll see you next week. Bye-bye. <laughs>